This morning we move from John's Gospel, having finished it a couple of weeks ago, into John's first letter. Not to overwhelm you with the number of Johns, John Berger had this idea, and it was a good one, that we would move from the substance of gospel narrative and who Jesus is and what it looked like for him to invade creation we would move from that into John's treatise on how we live together as the church. I told you a couple of weeks ago, I'm not entirely sure which one was written first, this letter or the Gospel of John. And I know that this is going to offend the more academic among you. I don't really care. I don't care about dating a lot of biblical writings. I care that there are people who do it. I don't care to do it. John's letter would actually be incredibly enigmatic and hard to interpret if we didn't have John's gospel. But we have both. We have both from the same apostle who loved the church, who had been loved by the same Savior, and who preached the same good news to his church, and they depend on each other. This letter needs the substance of who Jesus is and what he's done in time and space And so when it comes down to it, I don't care which one was written first, and you shouldn't either. When it comes down to it, because of who Jesus is, this is what our hope looks like. This is what our joy looks like. This is what our struggle with sin looks like. And John was writing to a community that knew him as a pastor and had been loved by him, and they had heard his preaching. So whether or not he wrote this letter to them and then preserved for antiquity the stories they already knew from his lips of who Jesus was in his earthly ministry and what he accomplished, or whether it was the other way around, it really doesn't matter. The substance of who Jesus is and the substance of the life he gives us together are interrelated. And so as we move into John's first letter, never forget the Savior that loved John And who loves us. And he'll start by telling us about Christ's invasion of creation. Little Christians, this is my question for you this morning. Or this is my series of questions for you. How much does it matter that Jesus is real? I know that sounds like a silly question. But think about it for a second. What difference does it make that Jesus isn't imaginary, that he's actually real? What would our lives be like if we didn't have him? Why is it good that Jesus is really our Savior? This is the good news as John wrote to his church. And as the Holy Spirit has preserved for us and given to us this morning, 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. John starts his letter this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard 
we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you as the Savior who invaded creation. You are the Word of God who became flesh with us and for us. Your gospel is a full gospel. It invades real people and real lives. This morning, would you both challenge and comfort us And in all of these things, would you fulfill our joy? Would you fill it up to the top? Would you overwhelm us with your delight, with new affection for the things that you have called beautiful? Would you confirm for us the fellowship we have with you and the Father and the Spirit? Would you deepen the fellowship that we have together as a church? Deepen our love for one another. Minister to us by your Spirit and in tangible ways that we see and hear among your people. We ask that you would do these things for us, for your glory and for our good. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Even in these first four verses, John tells us why he's writing. He's writing so that our joy would be complete. Which is a really comforting thought, but that's because we haven't read the rest of the book. He's going to say some very hard things, some uncomfortable things to us. Things that are interpretively difficult and things that are just challenging. Things that make us uncomfortable. That at different times may feel like they don't fit with the gospel we thought we had believed. And so the things that he's written will stretch us. Throughout the book, John is going to tell us that he has written for several purposes. He'll start chapter 2 by telling us that he's written these things so that we wouldn't sin. In the middle of that chapter, he'll explain why he's written to young men and fathers and children At the end of that chapter, he'll say, I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth. It's a little bit counterintuitive for us, but he's writing because we already know it. The reasons behind that statement will become more evident a little bit this morning, especially as we work through this letter. He says, I'm writing these things about those who are trying to deceive you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. A very reminiscent statement. It sounds a lot like the way he ended his gospel. When he said, I have written these things that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that in believing in him you would have life in his name. He'll end this letter by saying, I write these things to you who already believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to keep us from sin. He's writing to help us fight temptation. He's writing to set the record straight 
and put deception away and confront false teaching. He's writing so that our assurance would be sure and solid. And off the bat, he starts off by telling us, I'm writing so that your joy would be complete. I'm writing so that your joy would be full. So as we move through John's letter over the next several weeks, every time we encounter something difficult, every time we encounter something that confronts us, remember that he's writing for our joy. As a pastor who loves his flock, in a letter given to us by a God who loves his children, all of these things have been written so that we'd have a full picture of the gospel, all of its parts and the ways that they relate to each other, a full picture of who our Savior is, because in that, there's real and full joy. But because the thoughts of God are not our own, it makes sense that the way that He rejoices doesn't always fit with what we would pick or script for ourselves. But never forget that the way that God rejoices is better. It's deeper and fuller. His gospel, while not what we would script for ourselves, is better than what we could have come up with on our own. So all of these things have been written for our joy. By way of confession, I'll tell you that I tend to write abstract sermons. That's not news to a lot of you. Many of you have asked me at different times, a question about a sermon I've preached and then said, so what do we do with this? If I forget to tell you at the end of the sermon what to do with all of this, I'm going to tell you up front. Take all of this and rejoice. Take all of this this afternoon and celebrate together the goodness of your Savior. All the way through John's Gospel, Jesus talked about joy. In John chapter 3, he talked about being the bridegroom who comes to claim the church as his bride. And because he's the bridegroom who has come to claim his bride, his joy is full. It's the same language that John uses in verse 4. In John 15, when he talked about being the true vine and us being the branches and the Father being the vine dresser, the vintner who walks through his vineyard and tends for his creatures and makes them holy and beautiful in Christ. When Jesus preached that good news, he said, these things I have spoken that my joy may be in you and so that my joy and your joy would be fulfilled. In John 16, he talked about the sorrow that we encounter in this life and how his work in us And his promises of redemption are sure. How those things actually take our sorrow and turn them into joy. He ended that section by saying, Ask and receive so that your joy may be full. When he prayed for us in John 17 before going to the cross, he addressed the Father and said, I am coming to you, but these things I have spoken in the world so that my people may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so it's fitting that Jesus' apostle, when he writes to minister to Jesus' church with Jesus' grace, he does it with Jesus' purpose. 
I'm writing these things so that your joy would be full. Most of your translations say complete. The word there is the same word that was used all through John's gospel about things being full. We often think about the word complete in terms of tasks. We're finished with something. Some chore has been completed and it's done, so we get to put it away, check it off the list. That's not what John is saying. So that the tasks of our joy would be completed. He's saying so that our joy would be fulfilled. Filled up and overflowing with no room for sorrow. John is preaching these things to his church. And the Spirit has given us this letter so that our joy would be full in Jesus and it's rooted in who Jesus is, a full picture of who he is. We'll unpack this in weeks to come. And a lot of you already know this. We have a fairly biblically literate congregation. But we're also a mixture. Some of you know a lot of this and will want to talk to me later about Gnosticism. Some of you have no idea what Gnosticism is. I'm going to tell you. Don't worry. John is writing to his church because there are false teachers who have popped up and they have been teaching another gospel but not with a different Savior's name. They have taken the name of Jesus and attached it to different news and called it good. The things that they taught later became known as Gnosticism. It was a gospel built on secret knowledge, and it had many different versions, and it had many threads that tied them together, many things that the different versions had in common. One of the biggest threads was that they viewed the world in an overly spiritualized way. That real good news must be divorced from reality. That spiritual things are good, but material things are bad. And so they had a view of Christ. And they taught that Christ was something other than human. And his ministry was something other than real because what really mattered is what you thought and what you believed and having this secret inner knowledge and this inner experience divorced from the rest of life. Which is actually what liberal liberal theology in our day has done. It's over-spiritualized Christ and who he is and what his kingdom means, reduced it to some sort of ideal an ethic that's divorced from the rest of life. It's what modernity does when it says that who we are as thinking beings is most important. What happens internally is most substantial and important. But it's also what well-meaning and shallow evangelicalism have done over the years. That the goodness of Jesus is a goodness that doesn't intersect with the rest of life. That my relationship to Jesus is a personal and inner experience divorced from his church. And that the things that he does to me are internal and hidden. And no one gets to see them, no one gets to enjoy them, and they don't actually affect the way that I live in the world with other people. 
It's the idea that I am most spiritual and most religious when I am by myself, quiet and lonely, retreating from the rest of life. What John is telling us, and what I want to tell you this morning, is that is a horrible gospel. John is confronting the idea that Jesus is somehow spiritual but not substantial. That he's this great ethereal idea, but he doesn't actually make a difference this afternoon or tomorrow morning. That he doesn't actually confront the things that you do and the ways that you speak. And that feels nice to us a lot of times because it's not very challenging. What John is going to preach to us all through this letter is that the gospel of Jesus is both comforting and challenging at the same time. And that means that Jesus is going to have to be more real than the trouble that I encounter. He's more substantial than any, any anxiety that I have. He's more absolute and grittier than any of the things that I already enjoy. Because if we're honest, Jesus as a pleasant idea or religious feeling is not worth getting up for on Sunday morning. If the Jesus that we preach and believe in and pray to is nothing but an urban legend, nothing but a religious ideal, then you and I should be at brunch right now. Before I go on, I'll give you this caveat. As we preach the good news to each other, there are often times when we talk about things that will happen for us and the possibility that Jesus will give us an outcome that we want. When we're talking about someone who needs a job, when we're talking about someone with a rebellious child, and we're talking about someone who's suffering with some illness. We can't speak with perfect certainty about the timing of Jesus' goodness, that he will definitely turn back the child in a week or provide the job in a month or heal us right now. And that sort of delayed goodness starts to feel overly spiritual to us. I think it feeds some of this evangelical Gnosticism for us. Where we start to feel like the goodness of Jesus is flimsy and spiritual and way off in the distance so that it doesn't matter now. And we get disappointed in the waiting. But that's the struggle of the already and not yet. And John is not unaware of that. Everything that John preaches to us about the substance and reality of Jesus is not ignorant of the fact that his goodness may not be what we script or what we control and what we can chart. Later on, he will talk about the purifying effect of hope and the fullness of Jesus' substance coming into our reality in the future. But for now, he's dealing with the reality of our Savior the reality of his incarnation, the reality that he walked among us and lived a life in our world.
while the already and not yet aspect of the gospel may be frustrating to us, denying the substantive quality of Jesus, both in his incarnation and in the good things that he's doing in us now and will do for us finally in our resurrection, to wipe those things away spiritually, it guts the gospel. It hollows it out so that there's nothing left but a shell, a veneer of things that look good on the outside but have no weight to them internally. So if the healing that Christ offers in the resurrection is any less than the pain that I have or the cancer that infects my body now, then he's an inadequate savior at best. Liberal theology and Gnosticism and evangelical pleasantries apologize for that. And John refuses to. If his life here on earth ran on exceptions rather than the rules by which we live, then it would be worthless to follow him as a disciple because his life would have nothing to do with ours. He'd be some sort of fictional character. If the salvation that he offers is just a change in status on my permanent file recorded somewhere invisible that I will never see or encounter, but he works no real change in me, and he works no real change in you or in us corporately as a church, if he doesn't affect our relationships, our marriages, our parenting, our friendships, if he doesn't change the way we relate and live together as families and the way we care for each other and celebrate together, then the salvation we speak of is no real salvation at all. And if the joy that he offers is less substantial than the happiness I can find anywhere else on my own, then what good is he? If as so many in the first century, and so many even in the church today, if, as so many have maintained, Jesus is spiritually ideal, but he's divorced from real life, if the good things that he does for me are imagined and internal only, then he's not the real savior of John's gospel. He's not the real savior of redemptive history. He's not the real savior of a real church. And so off the bat, writing for our joy, writing so that our joy would be full and solid, not hollow and empty, John writes to confront the false notion that Jesus is a false Savior. And so he starts off in such a mundane way, it's almost offensive to us. You feel, when you read these verses, like you're at your kid's first day of kindergarten tomorrow. As if John is pointing to the different senses as he describes them, the things that we've seen with our eyes. And we touched with our hands. 
It's so elementary, it's offensive to sophisticated, reformed Christians. We know better than this. We can read Dutch theologians. We don't need this, John. And John is emphatic. You need a Savior like this. You need a real Savior that invaded real time and space and became real flesh and blood and really walked among us who ministers a real salvation and overcomes real guilt and real sin with real change. And so a lot of the things that will offend us later in John's letter, a lot of the things that will make us uncomfortable, like when he says, those who are born again don't sin. And when he looks you square in the eye and says, those who don't love their fellow man aren't born again. Those things are offensive because they are so real. They're so gritty and normal. It's offensive to us. That's John's point. The Jesus who brings you full joy really invades creation. And that's going to be his point through this entire little treatise on Christian spirituality. I wrote this question into the description of our soul class coming up for the fall. Is real Christian spirituality a retreat or denial of the world around us? It's kind of an obvious question with an obvious answer, but I'll go ahead and tee it up for you. No. Real Christian spirituality is not divorced from the real world with real need and real people. It's not divorced from the real church with all of the real people that really annoy you when you show up here. It's not divorced from an acknowledgement of the real pain that you feel with real problems at real jobs or with real kids. Christian spirituality is refreshingly real. Because it's a spirituality born out of the ministry of a Savior who became more real than any of us have ever been. Jesus is the new man in whom we are being remade. Because of him, we are becoming more human. And our lives are becoming deeper and richer and more real, not less. That will be John's point all the way through as he describes what Christian spirituality looks like for us. That that Jesus really came in flesh and blood to invade his own creation, to be really present and really accomplish something in it, to rescue real creatures and affect our real lives. Our faith and joy are full because they're not imagined Our faith and joy are full because our Savior is real. He brought real forgiveness and real change in the real world where we live. When we come in here to church, when we worship together, when we discuss God's Word together, when we pray together and make our needs known, when we celebrate together, we're not retreating from the real world. We're not doing something that's separate from the rest of real life. Who Jesus is and what he has done for us affects all of how and why we worship and work and rest and play and celebrate 
and love and grieve. It affects how we participate in justice and mercy, how we evaluate needs and try to meet them. It's why alms belong in part of our worship, not as incidental. When we collect alms, don't put in monopoly money. Put in real money. Because it's not a problem of people landing on boardwalk and owing a fake tax. We collect real alms to meet real needs. Because Jesus, as a real Savior, continues to minister through a real church in a real world. This is the goodness that John is going to hold out to us through the entirety of the book. Jesus is our real Savior. That he is and does the most real and substantial things. And so as John teases this out, he'll explain to us why Jesus is worth real devotion, real following, real imitation, real worship, real service, real sacrifice. Because our Savior is real, that changes us and changes everything with his full gospel. The goodness of Jesus is the source of your real and full joy. So this morning as you leave, as you finish worship and you go to celebrate with each other at lunch or in your home groups or when you go home and take a nap, Do all of those things in the satisfied and joyful realization that your Savior is real. Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, would you overcome our temptation to spiritualize you and spiritualize your gospel? to think of you as detached from real life, as nice and helpful, but not where it matters most. We rejoice that you overcome our brokenness and you make us whole again, not only internally and in invisible ways, but you put us back together in friendships and in our families. You give us real work and service to do as we meet needs for each other and for those outside of us. You have come as our real Redeemer. One day you will make, remake all of creation and remake us along with it. And in the meantime, we have the joyful privilege of watching you change our affections, put us back together in new friendships, in new service with new hope, All of these things would be vain and loss if you had not come in the flesh, if you had not really invaded creation. We thank you as our real Savior. We ask that you would continue to fulfill our joy, pull us back from the temptations that call out to us so much, so often. Let us find real and full satisfaction in you. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.